let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you calling it? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Sustaining Open Source Design, the podcast where we talk about both open source, the coolest of all methodologies for writing software, and design, the coolest of all methodologies for figuring out how anything should be made or done. Very interesting guest on today. Before I go around to introducing him, I want to introduce the other panelists that we have. Because we have me, Richard Littower. Hello, everyone. And we also have Errol Fox. Errol, hello. How are you? Hello. I'm doing Good. I'm really excited to have this conversation, actually. Me and Brian have been talking on Twitter DMs for a little while. Thank you for introducing our guest. Brian Paget is here. Brian is joining us today from his home in Ottawa. That's in Canada. Super cool place. He works there for Health Canada. Was that right? That's right. Health Canada as a data scientist in some very long-winded department, regulatory and observatory operations? Regulatory operations and enforcement branch. We care to monitor companies that produce health products that are distributed throughout Canada, and we make sure that they're following all the rules so that the products are safe for Canadians to consume. Ottawa is the federal capital, correct? Yeah. And so are there a lot of businesses like that in Ottawa? Is that sort of how you ended up there? Oh, that's a good question. I actually don't know if there's a lot of businesses in Canada that do that. We regulate everything that comes into Canada, like the Pfizer vaccine, whatever, like anything that comes in here across the border or things that are produced by Canadian medical, either drug companies or medical device companies. So it, it doesn't have to be within Ottawa. So Brian, you identify in your job as a data scientist. Can you talk a bit about what you do on like a day-to-day -day level so we have some understanding? Yeah, sure. I'm helping Health Canada transform into becoming a world-class data-driven organization. And what does that mean? So it means I'm helping them to design. Well, my, one of the main things I'm interested in is data catalog. I'm very interested in making it easy for people to get the information that they need in order to you know, do their jobs correctly. Most large organizations, especially governments, they have a lot of data, but sometimes it's hard for them to find it all. And this is what led me to have an interest in user experience. Because I feel like the user experience of working with data is a nightmare. Like it's, there's, it's so hard finding the right data. And even when you find it, it's not clean. You have to clean it. There's lots of tools out there to help you clean it, but it's very uh, hands-on like, and then very ad hoc. You have to do everything from scratch every time, it seems like. I've been doing a bit of like researching into you know, user experience so I can try to you know, design better as in just easier ways to work with data so that people can do their jobs correctly. I can totally relate to the experience of designing for data collection and then data cleaning. It was something that I did in Ishidi as a designer there. It is pretty tricky to really understand the best ways to facilitate, I think, data cleaning, because it's such a, from my experience working as a designer and a researcher on this and within the human rights context that Ishihidi worked on and in an open source uh, software context, because Ishihidi is open source, it was really about trying to think about not only the purposes 
that they wanted to clean the data for, like the for the maybe the monitoring and evaluation purposes and trying to anticipate those kinds of things for within this case, it was like small organizations. But it was also the kind of environment that these people were doing the data cleaning in. And yeah, so I I can relate to designing experiences around data cleaning and better data. It's something that, and I hate using this term, but I'm going to use it anyway, because a lot of designers will find it familiar, but it's not a sexy. I hate that. I hate that we call things sexy to design. It's so weird. But yeah, it's not something that we are drawn to as designers to, to design, but I actually find those kinds of things the most interesting things to design for. So, Well, I've seen some pretty good examples, like the, the New York City has a really nice open data hub. I think that's one of the nicer ones that I've seen. And there's like a data cataloging software called CCAN, and it's used by a lot of different governments and I want to say like public or like nonprofit or pro-social organizations. I guess used a lot by them. And so there are some, and I'll use the word, there are some actually very sexy data catalogs out there. But yeah, the work is very hard though. It's You don't realize how much work has to go into that. Yeah, there's a real... I want to say within any kind of design related area, when you, whether it's designing for data, designing for health, designing for human rights, designing for an operating system, there really has to be, I think, that at least that spark of interest that the designer has in that particular thing. And a lot of designers can find that spark in most topics, but I have found when I've tried to onboard or mentor designers with projects around like complex data systems or complex backend systems, or maybe even with, I think, perhaps even operating systems, there's sort of like a, ooh, uh, that's not, mm, I, I don't want to, uh, can I do something that's cool? <laughs> I'll move away from the word sexy. But yeah, I'm curious to know whether you've had the same experience with just being really excited about those kinds of projects and, and designing them well, and then other people, perhaps designers, maybe not. No, I don't think I've had that experience. I guess the experience I've had is that like, I, I got into data science through machine learning. And I think that is something that has a nice cool sound to it. And so that's actually what got me into or the user experience of data, because if you want to train a machine learning model, you need to work with some data, but then chances are the data is going to be a mess. So you have to spend a lot of time cleaning it. Yeah, absolutely. We briefly started talking about operating systems. And I'm really curious about, because there's a set of questions and a few conversations that we we began to have. There was a conversation that started around, I think, generally how designers become involved in open source and what are the best ways. I think the conversation that we started was, what are some of the best ways that you have grown design teams or try to include designers within an open source contribution process. And I remember pitching in on this conversation alongside a couple of user experience veterans. But yeah, Brian, please, I'd love to know a little bit more about what sparks these conversations about open source and design for you. So I guess I've had an interest in Linux and open source for a pretty long time. I get the impression that sometimes the user experience of certain programs are not always as good as people would like. And I always often wonder why that is. And so I did see uh, some tweets by Scott Jensen and he was saying stuff about they're diametrically opposed, open source and user experience. They don't, he's had a hard time getting involved in open source projects. The mindset or the way of thinking isn't really compatible with the way user experience or the, that kind of research and development is done. And so I want to just ask, is this really true? Is it really that they're diametrically opposed? Can we get people more interested and more involved? I think since then, it has become apparent to me that you can do it. Like I got a few discussions going on GitLab around Builder, which is this IDE for the GNOME desktop environment. The lead developer, Christian Herger, saw some of the posts, the exchange between Scott Jensen and myself and you as well. 
and he posted a thread on GitLab about design goals for Builder and trying to get some spark some discussion around that. And he made it a big giant list actually of different things about the Builder user interface that he wanted to improve and gather more user uh, research on. Yeah, I think but there is a bit of a, a funny thing because I guess a lot of open source stuff is done at the interest of the participants. Like they just contribute when they want to and then don't when they don't want to. When we started discussing this stuff on GitLab, it started off with quite a bit of momentum and then it got tapered off. And that could be partly, you know, my fault. I've gotten busy. I've got a full-time job, so I don't have the time always to keep up with this kind of stuff. And probably everyone else is in the same situation. That's maybe part of the issue with user experience and open source is that it's hard to keep the momentum going, maybe just over the internet with using developer tools. I think that's something that Scott Jensen was saying too, like Git and GitHub, those kinds of message boards may or may not be ideal for the kinds of discussions people need to have around user experience. It's interesting for me that you mentioned that open source is done by willing participants. I'm not sure that's actually true. Open source is done by agents, individuals who have free will in some sense. The problem is that we all know that we don't necessarily have free will. We have full-time jobs or we have limited attention spans because we have kids who are screaming and they need to be fed. And it's really interesting to me to hear this repeated perspective that open source is done by people who act as if they're in some sort of microcosm environment where like they're interested in stuff and they keep going as long as we're interested. When in reality, all conversations fail because people are like, well, I don't want to go little way in anymore. There's too much text. I can't deal with it. I just wanted to code in the first place. What am I doing here? And so a lot of these discussions around, particularly like on long GitHub threads, they end up being wars of attrition, right? Like who can stay in the longest? And it's like a monopoly game of, of conversations. I wonder when you've mentioned that the platform itself might be causing this dissolution or Scott sort of brought that up, what would it look like to have conversations be machine learned? So like this collapse, like, okay, here's what happened so far in this conversation or something like, how would we help those conversations be less long and exhausting and make it easier for people to have the space and energy to engage in ways that help them feel like they're accomplishing something? I know that's a pie in the sky dream, but I just, I'm, I'm trying to think of ways to make the platform not the problem. That's interesting what you would say, though, about you did by using machine learning to compress the conversation into the most salient or most informative parts. There's a lot of entropy, right? There's a lot of noise. Yeah. That's really interesting. Actually, I hadn't thought of that about that. Yeah, because I do have a lot of NLP experience, so I, I do know how to do those things. And I've been doing NLP since my undergrad. I got like a paper published in the Florida Artificial Intelligence Conference. I can't, it's FLARES. I can't remember the, what the acronym stands for. But yeah, I do have some experience with that stuff. And that would actually be very interesting. I guess the thing with NLP is it is like a wild animal. Like you, you feed it data and then it, you can do these things, but then you may or may not always like the results because the machine learning doesn't know anything, right? Like it doesn't know things that are interesting to a human. You can train it. They most of the time get it right. But some stuff is actually getting a lot better. Like all this stuff with uh, like GPT. And Bert, and there's another new one I think that just came yeah. out fairly recently. About the name already, but yeah, that would actually be maybe interesting. So you'd see is, is the the discussion on a thing like GitHub or GitLab. You'd see that as just being data that's fed into something, and then you could summarize it. Yeah, like that would be cool because that'd just be like a digest, and that would make it easier for people. Because when you go into that builder discussion, it's quite long. It'd take you a while to read it, and I'd be surprised if anyone could read that in one sitting. Most people wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't have the attention span. Well, we have that problem already with like all of Git, for instance, committing to Git. You have to have five years of experience to understand what was going on with the early discussions there. And I mean, machine learning was just one example. And I knew that you did NLP. And so it seemed relevant to ask whether that might be a possibility. 
The other possibility is to sort of go away from having text-based long chains with multiple participants who may not have the energy to continue things. So you could use something like Lumio to end the conversation early and try to get consensus earlier by using a different tooling system. Or you could use something like Miro that's more image-based. That's great. I like those whiteboard things. I love that we've gotten onto this topic because I think we haven't touched on it. And it's a really, it's an interesting topic because there are a lot of differing opinions within the open source design space, like designers that have been hanging about for a while. And I think that there's, it's very unlikely that there's a single thing that's part of the problem of designers communicating effectively within the space of open source. But platforms are definitely part of the problem from what I've experienced. So even at the moment, I've got around 10 to 15 design volunteers working on uh, the Open Food Network where I am at the moment. And it is really hard to get them to assign themselves to issues (laughs) and to write comments on issues. Like they'd much rather have a Slack conversation or have a Zoom conversation, sorry to kind of drop names of (laughs) products, but they'd much rather have like communication about the thing that they want to do in the tools that they are comfortable. And there's just not that comfort level or that, I don't know, maybe it's not comfort level, but maybe it's like, this is a space for me kinds of process that you go through whenever any human like looks at an interface, a tool and says, is this for me? And again, I think this maybe brings us closer to that Linux conversation that we want to have, like that question that I want to come back to around what do designers think of Linux and why don't designers use Linux as regularly as non-designers. But please, uh, Brian, if you have more thoughts on like the platform usage and natural um, drawn to go for it. Yeah, text can be overwhelming. What did you mean about people who prefer to have a slot conversation? Because I think I've experienced that too, but I guess I haven't done a lot of thinking about it. I think that when I'm at work, I do enjoy just having a private conversation, maybe a, like a small group, but it, there is something a bit more daunting about posting it up on a message board or even like in a whiteboard. I think my hypothesis is that a lot of the designers that I experience wanting to contribute to open source, regardless of where they are in their career, they're usually early to open source. So chances are they won't have actually had much experience with open source generally, or if they have, they don't know that they have, like maybe they have used Linux or maybe they have used an open source tool, but they just don't really get the exposure to it. And that there is something that feels very big and important about participating in issues and using GitHub or GitLab as an interface. And it just, we maybe, maybe it's something about us not being taught those interfaces as regularly as say Adobe interfaces. So maybe here's a sort of out there hypothesis, but maybe if there was like a skin for GitHub or GitLab that looked like design software. Maybe designers would be like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm, I'm here. Text box draw tool. Now I'll comment in there. And that's being a bit on the nose there and being a bit silly. But yeah, I do, that, I do cool. think that. I don't think there is, but do you know, if, is there a way to just add, because if you want to add an image to GitHub or GitLab discussion, you can, but you have to draw it in a separate tool and upload it. I wonder if like a whiteboarding feature would be useful. But speaking of that, actually, the GNOME developers actually added a whiteboard discussion thread to their GitLab instance. So now they've got a spot where like anyone from the community can just like throw in a throw up whiteboards, like design mockups. And I've noticed uh, quite a few people have been doing that since they put it up. So it could be the case that maybe some people don't feel like I'm, I'm speaking when I say people, I mean myself, because I've this is, I know I felt this before is I feel like I can go online. I can go onto like GitHub or various different GitLab instances and I can see people working on their stuff. But it feels like it's their work. And then if I want to just jump in and start docking, I do feel a bit like this outsider 
And, and I've spoken to the open source developers and they say, no, no, you can just come in. It's open. We do it. And, you know, it's like that for a reason, but there is something intimidating about it. That, that can't just be me, right? Oh, it's for sure intimidating. I can definitely speak to my own personal experience of being very intimidated at the beginning of my journey. But I think through pure sort of stubbornness, perhaps, and also the immense support of communities. This is going to sound like a, a promo clip, but f- from communities like Sustain, it, it honestly, I wouldn't have felt as confident being taking up space in open source spaces as a designer if I didn't have access to those communities. But I was able to find them. And I still don't know what the way to gather more designers in the space is. Yeah, I st- that's still an open question for me. I wonder if it is a bit around tooling because like the most popular design tools are, you know, from, I'm assuming, I mean, it's been a while. Like I, I did go to art school a long time ago, so I'm a bit out of the loop now, but I'm assuming it's still like Adobe and maybe Corel and I don't know, a lot of these big companies, but there has been some development on some really interesting open source design tools. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. One of them in particular that I'm very fond of right now is Penpot. And I don't know, maybe this is a bit of a plug, but it's just like a user interface designing tool. It's web-based, right? So it's most of the open source design tools. Well, I should be careful what I say because I don't know everything, but I think that most of them are just local, right? There's not there's fewer of them that enable collaboration online, but this one does that. And that, that interests me a lot. I just wonder if maybe more tools like this came out, people in the design communities would just become more of a normal thing for them that, oh, this tool is open source. And that makes sense to me because I've seen it, I've seen a bunch of open source tools before. It could just make it just foreign, maybe. I have a leading question that is going to go on to a point I want to make, which is really rude of me as the host to just want to make a point, but I do. Why do you use Linux, Brian? Why? That's a good question. A lot of people ask me that. I started using it when I was like pretty young. I was like 16 or 17 or so when I first discovered it. I think it just really appealed to me because it, it felt like the only OS that wasn't enforced anything on me. Like obviously reality has restrictions. So there are obviously restrictions and limitations to Linux, but usually not like imposed. You can usually work around things and do things the way you want. So I think it's just about being able to do things the way I want, be able to express myself the way I want. That's like a common theme throughout my life is I, I like to just be myself and do what I want within reason. Of course. And I just feel like Linux sort of fits with that. It just feels like I can make it fit who I am. Because I mean, like most stuff that you can do on Linux, you can probably just do on a Mac or those two, but it just feels a bit different to me. So... Perfect. And that reminds me a lot of what Errol was saying earlier about having space for people in conversations, having space for them to sort of have ownership and feel like they're connected. Because for me, the best design tool in the world is like a pencil. I mean, technology, we're talking about platforms and restricting it like lexically to like GitLab or Penpot or Miro, but really the OS is a platform. And all that we're doing with technology and with computers and with operating systems and with open source is just trying to talk to other people in ways that they can understand what we're saying. And then we can convince them that our ideas are maybe right and they're maybe wrong or maybe the other way around. And so I don't think it's actually different at all. And I think what's interesting about open source is that it matches for a subset of people like the three of us, our ideals of wanting to be able to like do things we want to do within this weird constraint of what's physically possible. I'm really glad you mentioned that reality has constraints. It does, right? I would love the time travel, but I'm never going to end up in 15th century England. Darn. So it's interesting to me when we're thinking about how do we get designers involved? And I think we have to broaden the definition of what a designer is and understand that a designer, well, instead of me defining it, does that align with you? And how would you define designer given the context I just sort of set up? 
Yeah, I guess so far I've been mostly talking about like graphical design kind of stuff. I mean, design is more, it's more than that. I don't really know how to define it. I've been a few different things, right? Like I, like I started out in art then I went into science and I've got a master's degree in statistics now. But yeah, I'm not actually sure how to define what a designer is. Can you define what design is for you? Can you define art without the artist? Oh, that's a tough question. Who is the dancer, the dancer or the dance or whatever it is? There's something about design that you're putting emphasis on something different than, I want to use words like curation and choice. Like there's something about, I have certain, like a, like a vision or feelings and I want to produce something that reflects that. But it is about expression. But design is also a bit more functional than pure art. That was a huge rift actually when I went to art school. There was the artists and there's the designers, like the scientists and the engineers. There's, there's these rifts that happen. But yes, yeah, so I guess it is something about expression, but also something functional. Really interesting topic because there are so many misconceptions about, or assumptions maybe, not misconceptions, but just assumptions about what design does. And I was even having a conversation within the Human Rights Centre design group today about the difference between or the combination of consistency as a design task or something that we do as designers, but then also expression. So you want tools to be consistent. You want them, we're actually talking about brutalism within (laughs) design and open source tools as well, but consistency doesn't mean the absence of expression and expression doesn't mean the absence of consistency. But I think that perhaps even for some very, and I can't quite find the right word I want to use, but maybe the best word that I can think of at the moment is well-equipped or advanced organizations. The ones with big budgets, they still struggle to do this. So how can we possibly expect open source organizations with the limited resources and the, the different kind of nature to be able to battle with this tough subject? It's a hard space to exist in and open source has a lot of challenges. I wonder if we are able to right now have that kind of conversation or whether we're a few years away from it. That's a really interesting point. I like that you mentioned about consistency and expression. I can talk a little bit about, like, I remember that about Adobe's tools. They're quite consistent. I think a lot of the Linux design tools are less consistent. That is part of the nature because you have very different groups of people working on these. And for the same reason that I like to use Linux, I like to do things my way. Those, those the people who work on like Inkscape, they do things the way they do. And that's different from the way the people who work on Krita. Those are two design tools or art design tools. These different toolkits, they have different design language. That's a very good question. And can that sort of consistency exist within the open source world? I would argue perhaps consistency is tricky to do within a non sort of open space or a non often think of open source spaces as quite transient sometimes. So you'll get some contributors really dedicated for a while and then people, things will happen. It's a a transience is not necessarily a bad thing. Neither is it good. It's just a thing. But I do wonder if it's the antithesis of consistency, transience and consistency. So I, I do wonder if there is a way which we can start to build design communities within open source that works with transientness, but also helps the consistency and expressions. Yeah. And I wonder if something like that, like, what do you think of human interface guidelines? Because I think if you have transient contributors, but there's this ever-present guide line for people to follow, that would help them. Because then you could look at the guide, the human interface guideline and say, okay, this is the sort of standard that we've been following. But I mean, within an open source, there's more than one of those human interface guides. But you're still going to get a bit of hope. Oh, I, I was going to say this word fragmentation, but I think 
diversity is another kind of word. That's another thing that I've been thinking about too, with the design of like Linux software or Linux desktop environments is there's a lot of diversity, but then sometimes it feels like fragmentation, but they're related. And I think that, uh, yeah, I wonder if there could be a way to have a bit of diversity in the, in the design, but they'll somehow consistent bit of both. I don't know. I think you've really hit on something here that actually I've struggled with as well, because I actually see a lot of resistance by designers wanting to contribute to a systems-based approach to open source tools. Because to me, it's it makes sense that a system exists, that standard can start to be built and built upon and iterated on. It feels very open source to me, but it also feels like something that designers can participate in. But the thing that I think rubs some designers the wrong way is still that feels very open source and it makes sense to me in an open source way because I have like half of my uh, heart is in open source and half is in design. But designers are beginning to work more with design systems, but there is a fundamental thing about the ownership element around for designers in the stuff that they do. And I think that sometimes when you start talking about design systems, but with an open source context, you start to have those conversations about ownership and what that means. And designers are not typically, until very recently, used to this concept of it might not be anything like what you've seen, what you created in six months, in in two years. And that's the nature of open sources. Somebody will submit a PR and somebody will do an improvement on that PR maybe, and it might be somebody that you've never met and you might never meet them and it might be a project you never go back to. And this is something that I think perhaps until maybe we have some ways to have those conversations, maybe that we won't be able to, but it's a very open source approach to the problem of consistency or the desire for consistency, but also expression. But yeah, very tricky. I'm thinking about transience and laughing because I mean, if you've ever worked in a large governmental organization, which I haven't, but I've read enough books. 1984, that surely qualifies me to talk about this. Transience happens there too. What you have is guidelines. Guidelines are what make HP and McKinsey work. They have guidelines which allow consistency, even though people float in and out. Everyone sort of changes careers. The old days of 50 years at one spot don't really happen anymore. And I see open source as a way of facilitating multiple people coming in and out of a project faster. It is more transient in that they're really not stuck there for hierarchical reasons. They're not trying to get their paycheck out of the work most of the time. They're floating in and out. And so I imagine each life interfacing with an open source project being a string and these strings tying together with the guidelines. And depending on how long you're there and how strong the guidelines are, the wolf and the weft, you end up with a really lovely tapestry. But trying to figure out how to make that tapestry work a certain way does enter into discussions around power. And discussions around how well is this designed? Who's making this loom that like makes this tapestry happen? And how do we improve the loom itself? And so when I see earlier on in the conversation, we're talking about platforms and we're talking about distributions, but also online web apps and things like Penpot. What I see is various interfaces with people trying to collectively set in guidelines and frameworks that allow people to do their work and share. And this is waxing philosophical because that's what I do. But I don't know. It's a really interesting discussion for me. And it's fun to imagine the designer being the one person in the group who actually takes a bird's eye view and says, okay, what's the picture that we're actually trying to weave here? How can we make it more beautiful? That's cool. It's a beautiful image. I like that. Yeah, I think it also boils down to trust too, right? Like, as I know, 
Gnome over the years has come under criticism from a lot of people. Some people don't like the opinionated stance that they have, right? Like they do want to strive for a consistent design language and consistent user experience. I've just seen this stuff on the internet, right? I never, I don't speak to a lot of real people. I just read about it. I've seen like a lot of complaints and like, oh, I don't like that they have their opinionated or their, the other word that they have. And maybe it's the hierarchy because a lot of people are attracted to open source because there's either less hierarchy or maybe none in some circles. But yeah, guideline, it does feel a bit like, well, yeah, who's in control of that? Who's contributing? Who's, who's um, deciding what goes in there? What doesn't go in there? It's all done in the open though. And I feel like if someone has like good ideas and they can argue for them, I would think they could get their ideas into the guideline. Yeah, maybe it's another thing that we could probably have a whole another 40 minute conversation about the way that we teach designers to have conversations. I don't think we teach designers to have conversations about how they pitch, for lack of a better term, pitch their work in the open. There's, you know, a lot that can be done across the entire experience of designers that would set them up better to have open openness conversations as well as participate in open source as well. There's a really fantastic question that was written and I really want to make sure that we cover it because I'm so fascinated to hear what you think, what your response to this question would be, Brian. But the question, which is how to engage open source developers in design thinking. What are your thoughts about how to do this? Because I could definitely learn some more (laughs) techniques to be able to do this well. I, I really don't know that much about design thinking. I've just I've learned about it fairly recently just from taking some courses online, like uh, interactiondesign.org, doing some stuff there. But so I don't know, maybe people do this already in open source. And when I look at it, it does, it looks a lot like an open source development model anyway, where, you, where it's agile and lean, you're just iterating, right? So I think, I think maybe it's just, uh, maybe just me being naive and learning about something for the first time and thinking, oh, this is great. Everyone should do this. You would have more experience. I'd be more interested in what you have to say. <laughs> I think you're too polite. Yeah. <laughs> you're not that naive. Imagine you are the open source developer, but you know something about design thinking. You've maybe had a conversation or done a course. What are ways in which you want to learn more? What are the things that you want to learn more about? And how would you best want to learn those things from a, like a designer like me? What would you be asking me to do for you? If you could ask me as a fairly competent open source designer, I, maybe I would call myself that. Yeah. What would you want from me? list out these things well okay for instance like like how do you do it online with people who may or just disappear if you give them criticism or something like that like for instance i, I posted some mock-ups on gitlab and yeah there wasn't a lot of feedback so then i was kind of like oh i'm not sure if people don't like it or maybe they do like it i don't know with this design thinking process you need a lot of feedback right like communication has to happen there has to be a, a safe space actually that's actually something that scott chenson was saying about I think he said in one of his tweets, it's all about the chill. Like it's all about people being comfortable with each other to be able to go back and forth and criticize and brainstorm together. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. How do you, how would you do that? Do you have experience doing that online with open source projects? No, sorry. That, that wasn't chill. Yes. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I, I really like having edge spaces, right? For me, that's my favorite sorry, method edge for that. Edge spaces. So you have the core conversation and then you have a way elsewhere where people can let off steam oh, and talk about their day. Yeah. The after party is where the chill's at, and that's where the conversations actually happen. That's true. Yeah. Once people have time to sort of digest what happened, their deep thoughts start to surface. And then, yeah. I'm going to push your question back at you, Brian. So, with those mock ups, yeah. Imagine that ideal scenario. What would that have looked like to you? Like, how much feedback would it have been? What kind of feedback would it have been? What kind of support would you have wanted? Well, I mean, there was a bit of feedback, right? Like so one of them I posted, I think it had, I was experimenting with some very slim tabs and someone said they didn't like that. And I just thought, okay, 
I think live discussion would be it because you put you post it and then it would be great to be able to have it once the GitLab discussion is growing large enough. Yeah, meet with some people who are, I guess, who are interested and then literally just discuss it in real time. I think that would be it. I think that, that would be what I would wish for, I guess. Makes a lot of sense to me given, but again, we're coming back to a topic which I think is really interesting because it, it comes into some kind of conflict with some of the things that I've observed of the open source world as the norm. So the the norm in the open source world is non-synchronous, asynchronous communication through text. Whereas what you're describing as potentially the thing that you would really want on design-related open source is a synchronous conversation, collaboration. So again, we sort of come to this place where we know where we want to get and how we describe it, but it's like, what parts do we need to tackle first? Is it the culture? Is it the tooling? Is it everything all at once? But yeah, it's, it's interesting that we keep coming up against this. Oh, we've come up against like a, a norm within open source that we think we need to change, but how? I wish we had time to answer that amazing question. And Brian, I wish we could hear more from you. Listeners, if you're interested in this conversation and if you're interested in continuing it further, Sustain has a discourse forum. We also have Slack channels. We also have a very active Twitter life. So both Errol and Brian, and to some extent me, but not really, are all on Twitter. And if you'd like to weigh in on these topics, please feel free to. You can find our discourse at sustainoss.org. And yes, I know I'm killing the mood by doing the admin thing, but we do actually have a time limit for this podcast. And I want to make sure we get to two other things before we finally wrap up. One, Brian, where can people find you on the internet? I do have a website, brianpaget.com. It's literally just a landing page. Oh yeah, it's, you can find me that way. That is Brian Paget, P-A-G-E-T dot com. One T. Are you on Twitter? Yes, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Brian underscore Paget. Excellent. So listeners, brianpaget.com, Brian underscore Paget. And now is the part of the show that we do here at Sustain called Spotlight. Spotlight is where we highlight really awesome communities or things or products or whatever, what have you that have helped us out in the past. We opened it up to what have you, because as a constant host, it's really hard to think of 80,000 different things. So my spotlight for this week is Anki, A-N-K-I. I talked with Brian Paget about this. I believe Anki is a really awesome tool for learning languages. It's a flashcard program that is open source and like a new public license. I've used it a lot and I hope Brian used it to improve his understanding of Chinese. Super cool. Errol, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight is not a open source repository, open source project, but it's one that has great implications as for what it can do for open source. So I got told about it today. It is a, a website called darkpatternstipline.org. And it's an amazing project around you being able to report dark patterns Dark patterns are design patterns that are used in tools and software that encourage users to do things that they maybe didn't want to do, like sign up for an email list that they never really wanted or hidden fees on checkouts and things like that. So this is a website where you can report things like that being seen in the wild, as it were. And there's some really interesting conversations that being had by the people that created this about what kinds of dark patterns are used in open source software. So one to keep an eye on to see whether there are open source dark patterns that are unique to open source. So that is my spotlight. Dark patterns everywhere. Awesome. Brian? 
one thing going on right now is actually the Libre Graphics Meeting Conference. So it starts on the 27th of May, that's today, and it ends on the 30th of May. And there's a, a few different presentations and discussions about open source and graphics and things like that. The website is LibreGraphicsMeeting.org. Awesome. For those of you who are aware of this podcast, is published after it was made, but I'm sure that the talks will be available online and you should go check them out. Brian, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on, not once, but twice, because our scheduling system is still in the works. Listeners, if you're interested in more, please check out sustainoss.org or please you know, tweet at us. If you want to be on the podcast, let us know. If you know of someone who would love to be on the podcast or would be really good to listen to, please also let us know. Thank you so much again, Brian. Have a good one. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. 